It's great to see you guys this afternoon. Uh, my name is Will, and I have the privilege of serving uh, as the pastor here at Crossroads. And you know, I, uh, I love Child Dedication Sundays um, because uh, they remind us that uh, it, it reminds us that we have a responsibility to teach these kids and to invest in these kids. And I see that many of these kids have families that have come to support them and they have a church that supports them. And this is the beautiful thing about family and about the church is that we come together and we have a responsibility to invest in and teach these children. But, you know, uh, Jesus says that there's actually, not only do we invest in children, but there's something that we can learn from kids as well. Uh, Jesus says that this is the beauty of the church that we invest in these kids, but they teach us as well some things about what it means to love God and to follow God. Children are a gift to us because they help us know God more. Um, you know, G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors, he says that many of us, we have a tendency to grow up, but yet God stays young. And many of us grow up and we, it, it, we outgrow the childlike nature of God. And we outgrow the wonder and we outgrow the joy and we become cynical and we become frustrated, exhausted, mean people. This city can do it to us, right? And we end up growing up and we become older than God in some ways. And we become crotchety curmudgeons while God remains childlike and that he loves and that he has wonder and that he has joy and all these things. And this is what I want us to consider today. If you have a Bible... Uh, turn it with me to Matthew 18. We're going to look at this teaching where Jesus uh, teaches us that we must become like children in order to experience the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the, the passage in Matthew 18.1 begins like this. And, and before we get into the passage, um, Jesus has just told his disciples in Matthew 17, he says, hey guys, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to rise again. In the Matthew 17, it says that the disciples were distressed. But yet in Matthew 18, verse 1, we see that they're so distressed that they're asking this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? <laughs> they immediate, they're like, uh, I was telling somebody today, they're like VPs of a company that just found out that the CEO is retiring and they immediately start going, okay, he's going to, Jesus is going to die. Okay. The CEO is going to retire and who's next in line. And so the disciples are like VPs trying to figure out who's going to get the job, who's going to get the chair. And so they say to Jesus, Jesus, we were just wondering who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, they wanted Jesus to give them the rankings, <laughs> you know, all right, there's 12 of us, Jesus, tell us. Starting with 12, go to one. You know, tell us, give us the rankings. And each disciple was probably asking themselves, okay, where do I fall in the pecking order? Uh, where do I fall in the order of greatness? Am I great? Am I influential? Am I impressive? Have I done enough to stand out to Jesus and in the kingdom? Who is the greatest? And this is the question that we've been asking ever since. The disciples asked it, and we still ask it, especially in this city. This is a city obsessed with greatness. People move to this city every day to pursue greatness. Fra old Frankie, old Blue Eyes said it best. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And so many people flock to this city to prove that they have what it takes. And it doesn't matter what industry you work in. The best of the best of the best are doing it in this city. And it takes dedication, it takes talent, and it even takes a little luck to stand out here, to be great in this city. 
And people, like I say, people move from all over the world to pursue greatness here in this city. And this city, we're obsessed with greatness. If you read the New York newspapers or the websites like Time Out or wherever, uh, they're filled with rankings. Seven best cheesecakes in Queens. You know, 10 best rooftop bars in Manhattan. Eight best falafels. Uh, six best iced coffees in Brooklyn, you know. And by the way, Coffee Rx just down the street made this, the list of six best iced coffees in Brooklyn. Go check it out. This morning, what's the first thing? The first thing I did this morning was I checked a list. And that list was the National League East standings. And what I saw was that the Mets, New York Mets, were four games up in first place. The Mets are great for now, for now, right? We all want to know who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? (laughs) Yeah, all right. And what what is greatness according to the world? Greatness in our world is defined by what you've achieved. It's defined by what you've done, what you've earned the institutions you've been a part of, the groups you're invited into, your credentials, your resume, what you've done to set yourself apart, or perhaps your status among your peers. This is how we define great. Have you guys heard the term goat? Some of you, uh, anybody you know, young knows this. Goat, what does that stand for? Greatest of all time. I want to show you guys who is the goat of marathoning. This right here is Elliot Kipchoge. Okay, so I'm a runner. Uh, That's why I look the way I do, um, uh, because I run a lot. This right here is the greatest marathoner in the history of the world. He has won nine world marathon majors. He hasn't won New York yet. He hasn't raced it. He says he will before he retires. So when he comes, I'll, I'll be on the sidelines watching. He's won nine world marathon majors. He holds the world record. He has two Olympic medals in the marathon. And that resume alone is enough to cement his status as the GOAT, the greatest of all time. But what he did on October 12th, 2019, ended all discussion about who is the greatest marathoner in the world. In Vienna, Austria, he did what many people said was physically impossible. He ran a marathon, 26.2 miles, in under two hours. One hour, 59 minutes, and 40 seconds. That is, if you ran the mile in gym class back when, you know, you were younger and healthier and fitter, uh, he he ran a 434-mile 26.2 times. If you're a fan of the metric system, that's 250 for a kilometer, for 42 kilometers. That's what it means to be great. He has cemented himself as the GOAT. He stands out as better than his peers, as better than the history of everyone who's ever tried to do what he's done. He has set himself apart. And that's the goal of sports. The goal is to be great and to set yourself apart in sports. But many of us, this is what we're trying to do in our lives. In one way or another, we're thinking to ourselves, how do I set myself apart? How do I stand out? In my little corner of the world, how can I be great? And so here's what many of us end up doing in our pursuit of greatness, in our pursuit of proving ourselves, we begin to look at different ways of keeping score. And we use those scoreboards to rank ourselves according to others. And often what we do is the scoreboards that don't benefit us, we put those aside and we take the scoreboards that work for us. So it may be sales numbers. I've got high sales numbers. I'm somebody. Or it may be net worth or the size of your apartment, or the neighborhood you live in. It may be the college you went to, or the clothing brands you wear, the type of car you drive, or the places that you travel, or what restaurants you eat at. 
Um, for, for younger folks like me and for teenagers, um, it, it could be follower, uh, the number of followers you have on social media, the number of likes you get on your posts, or the groups you're invited into in the lunchroom, students, the groups that you're allowed to sit at their table. Some of us, we even make our kids competitions, don't we? Man, isn't it, isn't it pathetic what we can turn into a competition? And we can go, hey, what school did your kid get into? Because mine got into the gifted and talented. Um, you know, or, or, hey, what lessons do your kids take? My kids take violin and tennis and basketball and, you know, uh, backwards running and Greek and Latin. And, you know, they take all these cool things and unicycling and juggling. You know, my kids take all these. My kids, look how they stand up. My kid read when they were six months old. Can you believe that? And you're like, man, my kid is like, they're like seven. Are they supposed to be reading it too at six? Like... And we start, we start going, where do we fit? Where do we fall? Am I a good parent? Where do I fall in the greatness thing? We can turn anything into a competition to determine our greatness. And the thing is, we do this in church too. You know, the disciples weren't exactly cultural elites. They didn't go to Harvard, these dudes. These were fishermen. They didn't have worldly accolades. They didn't have degrees on their walls. So what did they do? They took worldly definitions of success and they layered it onto their spiritual lives. How many demons have you cast it out, they said? They said, did Jesus call you the beloved disciple? How often does Jesus invite you to eat dinner? You know, and then we do this now. We do the same thing. How many quiet times have you had this week? Well, I'm, 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 I wake up at 3 a.m. to study the Bible. Six days a week. In seven days, I rest because Jesus said I'm supposed to rest on seven days. I only, I only take a rest because Jesus said I could. How many Bible verses do you know? What books have you read? What podcasts do you listen to? Uh, do, do you have all the right theological positions? And we start going, I do. And, and, and here's my, and we start comparing ourselves against people. We use religion as a scoreboard. What a sad thing to do. And the disciples, this is what they were doing. They were saying, Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And we all want to be great. It's hardwired in our DNA for our lives to matter. And that's a good desire. Like it's not bad to want your life to count for something. It's just that in the kingdom of God, greatness is defined so much differently than it is out in the world. And this is how Jesus answers their question. I love it. Because it almost seems like he's changing the subject. They say, Jesus, we really got to know. We're the disciples. We're the, you chose us. We must be special. Which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus looks around. He says, hey, 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 over here. In verse 2, it says, he called to him a child, and he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus grabs a toddler from the crowd. And I'm just guessing that after the service, after these kids have had fun in Crossroads Kids, if we were to randomly grab any toddler kid from Crossroads Kids, they're going to have a fruit punch ring around their mouth. They're going to have a chocolate stain on their shirt, sweaty hair, two front teeth missing, and shoelaces untied. This is what Jesus picks up, puts in front of the crowd, and he says, this is true greatness. And he says, truly I say to you. And when Jesus drops a truly I say to you, that means listen up. He's got something important to say. He says, truly I say to you, unless you turn around, change, stop what you're doing, go the opposite direction and become like this child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, forget about the question of who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You won't even get into the kingdom of heaven with, that, with a question like that. 
Jesus says greatness in the kingdom of heaven is to become like a child. Now, what exactly does that mean? We have to be careful here not to misread the text or to input our understanding of children in the 21st century onto the Bible. So my family and I, we were traveling this week, it was spring break, and so uh, we we took a couple days, we got out of the city, and as we were driving, I decided to type into my podcast app, Childlike Faith. I thought, maybe I'll find a sermon that another pastor preached, and maybe I can listen to like an interview or something. And I found a sermon, and so I was driving with the kids while they were screaming in the back, you know, and I said, you know, I'm going to listen to a sermon about childlike faith. And this guy takes this passage, and he says, Jesus says we need to have childlike faith, which he didn't actually say we need to have childlike faith. He said we need to become like children. But this guy says, okay, childlike faith is this. Kids take no thought in themselves. We should take no thought in ourselves. Kids welcome everyone. Therefore, we should welcome everyone. Kids don't care who's in the front of the line. Therefore, we, should be, we, we shouldn't care who's in the front of the line. Kids are joyful and carefree all the time. So we should be joyful and carefree all the time. Kids are always kind and always gracious. And he said, if you want to have childlike faith, then go and do likewise. And I turned it off before it was over. Because I was like, has this guy ever been around kids? <laughs> like kids take no thought in themselves. I love kids. I love my kids. I've got three of them. But listen, here's the one thing I know. I've been a father for 10 years. Kids can be just as cruel and mean and defiant and narcissistic and foolish as the rest of us. So we need to be careful not to romanticize children. So what many people often do with this passage is they'll sentimentalize children. And they start naming things about kids and saying, this is what this passage, this is what Jesus means here. So this passage, uh, childlike faith is about childlike wonder. Or it's about a carefree spirit. And those are great things. We should all have wonder and carefree spirits. Those are great things, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. And this is how we know. Because Jesus tells us what he means in verse 4. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus tells us that to be childlike... It's not that we're supposed to be like a child in every single way. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, it says, Paul says, brothers, do not be childish in your thinking. See, it's not that we're to be childish in our thought or our behavior. There's an important aspect that Jesus is trying to show us that is so important for us to never lose. An important aspect of being a child that's important for us to never lose, and that is the humility of the mind and humility of status. You see, children know intrinsically that they don't have any power, They don't have any wealth, they don't have any strength, and they don't have any status. They are fully, utterly dependent upon caregivers to give them what they need. They are nothing without caregivers. They will not survive. And see, we live in a child-centric culture in 21st century. This is why I think sometimes we have trouble with this passage. Children are some of the most valued people in our society. Children have high status in our, in our culture. This advertisers are the people they want are kids. It wasn't like this in the first century. There was no Disney World in first century Jerusalem. There were no soccer leagues, you know? There was no Nickelodeon. Kids were not valued in the same way that they are today. It wasn't a child-centric culture. It wasn't cuteness that Jesus was commending. It was helplessness that Jesus was commending. He was commending their utter dependence. See, the disciples say, we want to know who, who, who is the greatest. And Jesus redefines greatness for them. He says, greatness in the kingdom of God is not outpacing others. It's not having greater status. It's not through achievement and accolades 
and power and prestige and influence. It's gained, greatness in the kingdom of God is gained through humility and dependence. Childlike faith is an awareness of your complete and utter dependence upon God. This is what Jesus is calling us to. You see, kids know they need help. This is the part of the child that we must become like. This is where the kingdom greatness begins, when we have an awareness of how much we need God. See, this is what's true about a child. Children live in complete dependence on the generosity of their parents and their caregivers. Listen, if you just, I mean, this is at it, the most base of a child's mind. A kid knows that they need help. And they just assume that you were put on this earth to help them, period. That is the brain of a child. This is why kids have no problem shouting, mom, dad, a thousand times a day. Mom, 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 mom. They have no problem shouting this. Why? Because they just assume these are my parents. They love me. They were put on this earth to give me what I need. And so they ask for it. You see, there's something beautiful about this. Listen, if you want to learn how to pray or if you want to learn how to relate to God, don't look to religious people. Look to children. If you want to learn what it means to relate to God, look to the way children relate to their parents, especially those who have loving parents. Pay attention to how a child makes a request. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You may be doing something important. You may be talking to someone important. You may be comfortable. Anybody, you may have just gotten in your pajamas and sat down on the couch and gotten comfortable under the blanket. You may be busy. Your child doesn't care. When a child is loved, they just assume they're the priority and they'll run to make their request known. It starts as an infant. They cry for food. They cry for embrace they, and, then, and comfort. And it continually grows as they get older and they begin making specific requests. And my kids have a radar. They know when I'm comfortable. They're like, dad's walking around. Now's not a good time to ask him something. He's already in the kitchen. Not now. Okay, dad just put his shorts on. Oh, dad's in his chair. Dad's got the blanket on. He just turned the game on. Now, dad, I need some milk. It's every time. You see, pay attention to what children do when they're scared. Who do they call for when they're scared or when they're hurting? You know, when we're hurting and when we're scared and we're afraid, what do we try to do? We try to power up and white knuckle our way through our fears and our anxieties. Children run to their mothers and they run to their father. I remember taking my daughter on a roller coaster for the first time. My, I think I still have a scar from where she gripped my hand. Dad, 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 dad. As if I could do anything. But she, it, there was an assumption, Dad, I'm scared. You can do something, so I'm shouting your name. Whether it is meet my need or help me in my fear, children will bring all of their requests to their mother or to their father, all in trust, all their dependence completely given to their caregivers. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to recognize that in the kingdom of God, you are a beloved child. God loves you the way a loving parent loves their child. And when you have a request, no matter how big or how small, many of us, we don't pray because we think, man, God, God wouldn't deal with this little thing. I'm not going to bother God with this thing. Other people have so many big problems. I'm not going to, no matter how big, no matter how small, God is calling us to recognize that even in our most difficult trials, to, to, to depend on him. 
And when we're afraid and when we have anxiety and when we have fear, Jesus is saying, don't start relying on your works and your accomplishments and your power and your ingenuity to get yourself out of the situation. You need God to save you. You need his power if you're going to have any impact in this world. And so I just want to give you a pastoral encouragement here. If you're in a place right now where you just feel, you're like, I feel like a child right now. Like, I just feel like I have nothing but childlike dependence upon God. And you may feel ashamed of that because you feel like you should be stronger. You may feel utterly helpless and feel like you can't do whatever it is you're facing in your own strength. I just want to say to you, congratulations. Because you are closer to the kingdom of God right now in this moment than you've ever been. God wants to use this moment of your life to cultivate dependence in your life on him to show you that he is trustworthy. See, to have childlike faith is to have an awareness of your need for God and to trust him to provide for you. And I want to give you two reasons why this kind of dependence makes you great in the kingdom of God. Childlike, the first thing is that childlike faith leads to greater joy. What is greatness in the kingdom of God? It's abundant life. It's joy. You see, and when you have childlike dependence of God, I'm telling you, you will experience more joy in God. This is the beauty here of the kingdom. When you entrust yourself to a loving father, you will find that he cares for you, that he provides for you. And the joy of knowing that will shape how you relate to him, not only in the difficult times, but in the joyful times as well. I want you to see, um, I'm about to show you a video. Every year I, we take our kids to Sesame Place. You guys know where this is? It's like Sesame Street theme park, right? Every year we take our kids to Sesame Place. And this is a video from a few years ago uh, with my oldest son. I don't know if you counted, but in a minute and a half, he said, Dada, 197,412 times. I watched this video. It comes up, you know, every year, one year ago, you know, five years ago, whatever. And I watched this video. It makes me so happy. Like my wife and I, we orchestrated that moment. We booked those tickets for that character breakfast months in advance. We paid an outrageously, an outrageous amount of money to do it. We orchestrated, we paid for, we created that moment for him to experience that joy. And, and he gave us exactly what we wanted. He invited us into his joy. This is a picture of how we should live our lives in relation to God. We share our joy with him. Because in the end, every good and perfect gift comes from him, the scriptures say. We express our delight to him. It deepens our relationship with him and it goes on and on and on. You see, childlike dependence brings great joy. You know, it's when a child forgets that they're dependent upon their parent that they actually lose their joy, isn't it? Man, is there anything sadder 
than a child who thinks they know more than their parent? Is there anything more annoying to be around than a spoiled, petulant child who is ungrateful? I think of Veruca Salt, you know, Willy Wonka. I want it now. I heard Shaquille O'Neal say, or Shaq, uh, say one time, you didn't think you were going to come to church and hear Shaq quoted. One time he heard one of his sons boasting about how rich he was to one of his friends. His, his, his son was saying to his friends, yeah, I'm rich, I'm, I'm rich, I'm rich. And Shaq said he pulled his son aside and he says, son, you ain't rich. I'm rich. And Shaq said he, he, was, he, said he was actually angry. He said, I want to teach my kid a lesson. He was like, I, you're, you're not rich, son. I'm rich. And he said, my son forgot for a moment that he was the child. And Shaq reminded him, son, don't forget you are dependent upon me. And this is also true in the kingdom of God. When we forget that we are dependent upon God, and when we forget that every bit of intellect and skill and opportunity and privilege and accolade God has given us, it came from him. When we begin to think that we earned those things and that the people who didn't are less than us and we're better and we're more successful and we're greater, when we become like that, we begin to think we're the ones in control. We begin to think we're special. And then we begin to repel people from the message of Jesus. And we actually get robbed of true joy in the process. You see, childlike dependence upon God produces a greater joy in our lives because everything we receive, we see it as a gift. And we go, man, we've got, I've got a loving father who gives me good things. The second way that childlike dependence uh, upon God makes us great in the kingdom is this. It's Jesus tells us in verse five, he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. The second thing that childlike faith gives us and makes us great in the kingdom is that it leads us to greater compassion toward others. Jesus said, whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me. You know, those who understand that we are fully dependent upon God, the people, you know, the people in your life that you think of that are just the kindest people, there are people who recognize that, that nothing they have is there, that it was given to them. And then these are the people that look at other people in the world differently. You know, most of us, if we are honest with ourselves, most of us walk around with a radar, an antenna, and we meet somebody and within five minutes we start thinking, can this person help me? Can this person benefit me? Can I get further along because of this person? Because if, if they can help me, then I'll make time for them. And we call this networking. You know, we give it a positive spin to it to make it sound like we're doing something important. Or we'll ask, we'll say, if this person's going to drain me like a battery, then I don't have time for this person. If this person's going to cost me something, I don't have time for that. Listen, what if Jesus looked at us the same way we looked at others? If I can't gain something from you, then I don't want to have you. Praise God, Jesus didn't look at us that way, the way we look at others. See, Jesus, when we were still sinners, he swooped us up like little children when we had nothing to offer. When we were like the little toddler with a fruit punch ring and untied shoes, Jesus scooped up us, scooped us up and said, you are mine, you are, I'm, you are my child. 
And see, a childlike faith begins when we begin to see others the same way Jesus sees us. See, having childlike faith, it gives us goggles with which we can see the world. We see people not as people who can benefit us. We begin to see the weak and the vulnerable not as people to be dismissed or passed over, but people to be loved and people to be welcomed. And at the very core of this passage, you know, this passage really isn't about children. This passage is Jesus teaches us that he really cares for the vulnerable. See, nothing, the point Jesus is making is that nothing is more vulnerable than a child. Jesus easily could have taken a developmentally disabled person or some other vulnerable group and said, this is true greatness. And Jesus says, whoever receives someone like this in my name receives me. Listen, Jesus means this. Remember, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, the way that we treat the vulnerable, the way that we treat children, the way that we treat the disabled or the homeless or the poor or the immigrant or maybe even the elderly, people who can't give us something, people who, with the way we treat people who cannot benefit us, the people who don't offer us any status, Jesus says the degree to which you love them, that is the barometer where I judge how much you love me. The way you love the vulnerable, Jesus says, that's how you love me. And he takes this so seriously. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for them to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Listen, I'm not sure what could be worse than having a cement block tied around my neck as it pulls me down to the depth of the ocean. But Jesus says God's anger and his judgment toward those who would exploit the vulnerable is much worse. God cares a lot about the least of these. And he's watching. God is gracious and he is loving and his kind, but his grace and his heart bends toward the weak and the vulnerable. And the way we treat the weak and the vulnerable, God is watching. Um. I mentioned that I'm a runner. I'm a part of a track team here in New York, a running club. And it's a pretty big team. And on our team are some very influential, very important people. There are people on our team who are wealthy, very wealthy. There are people who are influential. And there are a few celebrities that are on our track team. People, if I told you their name, you would know their name. And it's always funny at our track, at our running club events and our track practices, it's always interesting to watch the influential, wealthy, famous people and watch the way everyone else stumbles over themselves to get a hearing with those people. And I'm, I'm just as guilty of it as, to, as well. We all want to be in the proximity of influential people. But on our team, there's also a few people who are developmentally disabled that are socially awkward that aren't hip, aren't cool, aren't wealthy. They're just, they're developmentally disabled adults that kind of slow us down, kind of make things awkward. And one of the things I've noticed is that, one, my own disposition is not to immediately stumble over myself to, to, to hang out with those people. And not as many people give the same amount of attention to those people. Not as many people trip over themselves to get near to these people, but some do. Some people are so kind and so generous with their time and with their kindness toward people who don't have much to offer. And when I look out at that, I go, who's greater in the kingdom of heaven? 
The people that are tripping over themselves to get in the proximity of power and wealth are the people who are tripping over themselves to love someone that nobody else is paying attention to. Think of a kid in the cafeteria in high school. Who's greater in the kingdom of heaven? The kid who's lobbying to get at the cool table or the kid who leaves the cool table and sits at the table with the misfits? Let me ask you, what is your disposition and your posture toward people who don't offer you anything? The disciples, they were so consumed with who's the best, who's top ranked, and that they missed the point. And this is why Jesus takes a child and says, this is greatness, become like this. And love these people. Stumble over yourselves to love these people. Become like this and you will be great in the kingdom of heaven. And here's the truth. This is exactly what Jesus did for us. See, I want you to see that there is a childlike greatness of Jesus. Jesus was giving us, he was cluing us in into what he's like. He said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, become like a child. What did Jesus do? John 1.1 1, 1 says that in the beginning, God, Jesus was there. He created all things and in him all things hold together. But, and he's been around for all eternity, but yet on Christmas morning, he entered into the world as a child. He made himself dependent upon Mary. He made himself dependent upon the will of his heavenly father. And that dependence took him to death on a cross and through his dependence on the will of the father and through his vulnerability, we are lifted up. That's greatness. You see, Jesus doesn't ask any of us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. He says, you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Become like a child, like I did. And Jesus became like a child so that we could become children of God. This is the message of the gospel. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, that Jesus became a child. He became like us to redeem us. And what we celebrate on Good Friday is that as a child, he grew to be a man who made himself vulnerable to the powers of the world. He died on a cross. But then on Easter Sunday that we celebrated last week, all of those things are defeated when Jesus kicks open a grave. And so Jesus became a child so that we could become children of God. And now he calls us to follow him, to become like children for the sake of the world. Let me pray for us, church. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you love kids. And God, we, I, I, every cry that we've heard in this room today is not a distraction, but it is a reminder of your goodness and your kindness. And so God, as we hear these babies cry, we know that we've got kids in Crossroads Kids making noise and eating sugar and doing all these things. God, may they be reminders to us of what it means to be great in the kingdom. And so God, we trust you and we thank you for your goodness. In your name we pray, amen.